chapter number seven, or excuse me, Ecclesiastes chapter number seven. Exodus seven is a good chapter as well, but let's do Ecclesiastes chapter number seven. Uh, if you would, we're gonna cover, uh, not the whole chapter tonight, we're gonna cover verse one down through verse number 10. If you'd go there, Exodus seven, and as you turn there, uh, we're continuing in our series to the book of Ecclesiastes, a series which I've entitled Meaningless. Meaningless, And we're looking at the life of Solomon, the great penman of three books in our Bible. You have the book of the Song of Solomon, which Solomon wrote when he was young and in love. And he compares his love uh, for this woman and he compares it to the love that we ought to have, the intimate love we ought to have for uh, God. And then also you have the book, obviously, of Proverbs. And Solomon wrote much of the book of Proverbs and uh, gives great wisdom and understanding and expounds upon the knowledge that God gave him, the wisdom that God gave him. Uh, again, in Second Kings, our first king Solomon, uh, God appears before Solomon and says that because you love me and you've honored me, I'll give you whatever you want. And Solomon says, uh, I want wisdom. Great thing to ask for. And Solomon gets that. God gives him the wisdom and then also gives him wealth beyond measure. And then he gives him honor in his reign as king. And those latter two are what got Solomon in trouble later in life. We've been talking about that in the book of Ecclesiastes and the contrast between the other books that Solomon wrote. What went wrong? Uh, what happened in the life of Solomon where someone who had such great potential and did such great things for God would come to the place in, in chapter number, I believe it's two or three, where he says in verse 17, I hated life. That's what we've been looking at. And so if you look at Ecclesiastes chapter number seven, look with me at verse number one, and I want you to pay attention. We've done this a couple of weeks now. Pay attention to some words that I put a little extra emphasis on and see if you can catch the tone of the chapter and the message tonight, all right? Ecclesiastes one, verse one, it's, or seven, verse number one, it says, a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men. And the, house, uh, and the living will lay it to his heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of the countenance the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better to bear the rebuke of the wise, or excuse me, to hear the rebuke of the wise, than for a man to hear the song of fools. For, uh, for as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. Surely oppression maketh a wise man mad, and a gift destroyeth the heart." Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. And the patient, is, uh, patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry, for, the anger, uh, for anger resteth in the bosom of fools. Say not thou, what is the cause, that the former days were better than these? For thou dost not inquire wisely concerning this. If you... Seen a reoccurring word there? Reoccurring word, a couple of words that reoccur. In the, book of, uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter number seven, the word wisdom or wise or wisely appears 11 different times. And in chapter number seven and chapter number eight, the word better appears 18 different times. And so I, I kind of believe that there's some significance to that and that Solomon is trying to gain our attention. And I believe that you could summarize this chapter, chapter number seven and even chapter number eight, uh, summarize it this way. Wisdom is better, all right? Wisdom is better, and that's what we're going to call tonight's message. Wisdom is better because that's what Solomon, I believe, is summarizing in uh, Ecclesiastes chapter number 7 and chapter number 8. And you're going to see as we progress through this chapter that Solomon, and really God through Solomon, sorry, I'm spitting, Solomon, uh, God through Solomon is placing a very high premium on this thing of wisdom. It's very important and it's very significant and places a high premium or a high value upon this thing of wisdom or this subject of wisdom. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, as I was reading an article, uh, it, it came out, uh, Harvard Review uh, gave out this article about the six current living generations. That's very interesting, but there's, did you know that uh, I, I believe according to the census that there's six living generations amongst humanity today? Six living generations talked about the first generation that's still alive and, and still kicking, the greatest generation, or the World War II generation. Great generation uh, from 1901 to 1926, and I'm just going to take a stab. Is there anybody that, was, that, that falls into that demographic? I don't think anybody in here tonight uh, falls into the first, the greatest generation. All right, what about this one? The silent generation, 1927 to 1945. How many of you, that describes your generation? 
You're, you, you can raise your hand because that's a lot of respect. It's, when you get to a certain age, then it's just respectful and you have a lot of wisdom, okay? So the greatest uh, generation then the silent generation, and they call it the silent generation, not because they didn't experience war. They did experience war and they experienced conflict, but not to the magnitude really of World War I and World War II. So they gained the name the silent generation, all right? Here's the next one, the baby boomer generation. If you're a baby boomer, raise your hand. All you baby boomers out there, 1946 to 1964. After that is Generation X. Generation X, 1965 to 1980. How many of you Generation Xers? Uh, they also called this the forgotten generation because people forget that you guys even exist. They think it's, it goes from uh, the baby boomers to millennials, but Generation X, you guys represent, okay? You're important. Uh, generation X is 1965 to 1980, and then you have my generation, the millennial generation, uh, 1981 to the year 2000. All you millennials, raise your hand or your cell phones, either way. Uh, all right, the millennial generation. I'll say more about that generation here in just a moment. You got the up-and-coming Generation Z. Generation Z is the 2001 to the present time. So Generation Z, raise your hand if you're Generation Z. There you go. Uh, look away from your cell phone and raise your hand, all right? Generation Z is 2001 to the present. And I obviously I read and I was very interested to see the differences in all the different generations. And um, I'm probably a little bit more interested in my generation because I'm in this generation. And I was interested to see what he had to say. And uh, it was interesting because he referenced us as the privileged generation. And that is very true. We are very privileged. And so uh, as he began to expound and, and he began to talk about the di different generations, what the writer was saying in this article is that there is a generation, that is the millennial generation, that has more knowledge than any of the previous generations. We have more access and more knowledge to, uh, to, uh, to not, we have more access to knowledge than any of the previous generations simply because of things like the internet. I, I, I thought that the internet was actually a newer thing, but actually the internet was invented, I believe, in 1983. And so since the invention of the internet and uh, cell phones and uh, the internet and computers and technology and all these different things, we have more access to knowledge than any of the other generations before us. And so you would think that because of that, we would be more the wise, but actually we, they found in the article that although we are privileged and although we have more access to knowledge, sometimes we even have more knowledge, but we do not have the wisdom to back up the knowledge that we have. And I'm not offended, you can say amen, because it's very true. It's very true. We have access to knowledge, and man, uh, we bought into the lie, the article said, we've bought into the lie that if you can just get an education, you'll be set for life. And those of you who said, mm, you're the ones who fed us that lie. It's true. It's true. You're the ones who fed us that lie, because you told us if we would just get an education, that we would be set for life. And I'm not dogging an education, but it does matter what kind of education you get. And that could very well determine how successful you're going to be in life. Uh, I'm not even going to do it. I did it in messages past, but it's just baffling when you look at all the different kinds of uh, uh, degrees that you can get. Uh, all these different weird wacko degrees that take all this time and energy. And it is knowledge, but it's not really worth anything. And so we bought into the lie that all we had to do was get an education and we would be set for life. But there's one problem with that mindset and there's one problem with that thought and that is that we have to have the wisdom, we have to be able to have wisdom to apply the knowledge that we have and wisdom is an important element in regards to success. Now don't fault us too much for that. Uh, don't fault this generation too much for not having a lot of wisdom because we didn't go through what you went through. Wisdom, I, I've, I've said this before, I think it came from my dad, but wisdom comes through two avenues, your experiences and the experiences of others. And you, your generation, Generation X and the baby boomer generation, silent generation on before, you experienced things that we never experienced. That's when he said we were the privileged generation, not just because of the access to the knowledge that we have, but also because we haven't gone through anything that you guys have gone through. So don't fault us too much for not having the kind of wisdom that you have because we haven't been through what you've been through. And I heard it said by a preacher growing up that there are, there are two kinds of preparations that we make in life. Two kinds of preparations that we make in life. Conscious preparation and unconscious preparation. 
Conscious preparation and unconscious preparation. Conscious preparation is what we do intentionally by attaining knowledge through school, books, movies, lectures, etc. It's what we intentionally do to set out uh, to learn and gain knowledge. That's conscious preparation. And unconscious preparation is defined this way. It is what we gain through the experiences of our own in life or the experiences of others in life even if it's inadvertent. Okay, so we might not intentionally uh, seek to learn from our, our experiences, but we are gaining knowledge all the while. Through our experiences, and if we're smart, through your experiences. We could summarize it this way. One begins and one ends. Conscious preparation has a beginning and has an ending. Are you saying that there comes a time where you're going to stop learning knowledge? No, but um, really, uh, conscious preparation takes place when we are deliberately in school learning. That happens really from age three and four all the way for some of us. If you expand your college knowledge, uh, I made a rhyme, college knowledge. If you expand on your college education, you get a master's degree, you're looking at your mid-20s, maybe uh, upper 20s. But that's really, I mean, depending on if the Lord comes back or if you don't live a long life. But most of us, the average lifespan, I think, is 80 years old. That's only a small portion of your life. And so it has a beginning and it has an ending. And uh, uh, that's the conscious preparation. The other has a beginning but never ends. It never ends. You start attaining wisdom, but for the rest of your life, you will never stop attaining wisdom. Now hear me, you will always be getting more wisdom, but whether or not you choose to apply the wisdom you have is to your discernment. But that's not gonna change the fact that you're ever learning. You're gonna continue to learn from your experiences and the experiences of other people. One considers the intellect and mind alone. Conscious preparation just considers the intellect and the mind alone. The other considers the intellect, the mind, the will, and the emotions, the unconscious preparation. And really, we're just talking about the difference between having knowledge and having wisdom, okay? And the unfortunate truth is that we, uh, we place such a high premium on knowledge that we forget the admonishment that God has given us to gain wisdom. We place a higher premium on gaining knowledge, as much knowledge as we possibly can, that we neglect the commission that God gave us in Proverbs 4 and verse number 5 to get wisdom, it says. Get wisdom, get understanding, forget it not, neither decline from the words of uh, my mouth. Forsake her not, and she shall preserve thee. Love her, and she shall keep thee. Wisdom is the principal thing. Great verse. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom, and with all thy getting, uh, getting get understanding. Exalt her, and she shall shall promote thee she shall bring thee to honor when thou dost embrace her she shall give to thine head an ornament of grace a crown of glory shall she deliver to thee God places a very high premium on attaining wisdom now listen I'm not I, I'm, I'm not against gaining a conscious uh, a conscious preparation I'm not against uh, uh, gaining a conscious preparation or attaining knowledge. Uh, I'm not against getting the best education that you possibly can get. As a matter of fact, I encourage you to do that. Get the best education that you can possibly get. As a matter of fact, I found, I'm 27 years old, I found that at 27, I am more hungry now for knowledge than I ever have been in my life. More than high school, definitely more than high school, more than when I was in college, um, <clears throat> whenever I... Wake up during the week, I work Tuesday, usually through Sunday, and on Tuesday I wake up, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday I wake up, and I spend about four to five hours studying and reading, and some of that is just reading for pleasure and for knowledge. I, I desire, I'm hungry for it, so I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with attaining knowledge. You ought to get knowledge, but listen to me, you can be an educated fool. You understand? You can be an educated fool. You can have all the knowledge but not an ounce of discernment and not an ounce of wisdom. And Solomon would have you believe the same thing because that's what Solomon was. Solomon would have you understand that it's better to have God's wisdom than to attain the knowledge of man. He's not saying the knowledge of man is wrong. We'll talk about that tonight. But he's saying it is better to attain the wisdom of God than to attain the knowledge of man. So that begs the question, how do we get God's wisdom? How do we get God's wisdom? How do we gain God's wisdom? And truth be told, uh, and without taking into account that God could elect to withhold knowledge from us, did you know that, uh, listen, I'm not trying to sound carnal, uh, carnal, uh, carnal sounds good, I'm not trying to sound carnal, and I'm not trying to sound anti-biblical, and I don't want to take away from the holiness of God, but I'm saying that based on God's behavior uh, and, and given, the fact that he could, uh, given the fact that he could choose to withhold knowledge from you, did you know 
that you can get knowledge without God? You can. You can get knowledge without God. You can attain knowledge. You can attain an education without God's help. But you cannot get God's wisdom without God. Why? Because he's the source of wisdom. He's the source of wisdom. I believe it's James 1 and verse number 22 says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth to all men, uh, men liberally, and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. God is the source of wisdom. And so you can't really go anywhere else to attain the wisdom of God except for God himself. And so here's what I want to share with you this evening. I, I'm, I'm the assistant pastor here. I've been the assistant pastor for just a couple of months. Pastor's the pastor. Here's my desire as his pastor's desire. My desire, as his pastor's desire, is that every single Bible-believing, uh, converted member of Wooden Valley Baptist Church gain the wisdom of God. It's my desire, that's pastor's desire, that ought to be your desire for yourself and for your church and for your family. That's our desire, is that every member, every family unit, every person in this room in Wooden Valley Baptist Church, not just attain knowledge, not just attain any wisdom, but we desire that you attain the wisdom of God. Very important. So again, how do we get God's wisdom? How do we get God's wisdom? Let's just unfold the text here. Verse number one. Number one, crying is better than celebrating. How do we get God's wisdom? Crying is better than celebrating. Look at verse number one. It says, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of one's birth. Pause for a second. We're going to keep reading. But did you catch what Solomon said? A very interesting statement. He says, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death better than the day of birth. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never sung Happy Death Day to anybody. Happy Death Day to you, Happy Death Day. I mean, could you imagine if we just kind of gathered around a casket and said Happy Death Day to somebody? Everybody would look at us and think that we're morbid. As far as I know, I've been to Costco many times and I've never seen a Death Day cake ever in my life. But we know all too well how to celebrate birthdays, right? We know how to celebrate birthdays. We're all about celebrating our birthday. Matter of fact, I feel like the older you get uh, in your childhood years, the more extravagant it becomes until you're 25 and then it just doesn't matter anymore and no one really cares. But we know how to celebrate uh, our birthday. I understand though that Solomon isn't saying that it's wrong to do that. Uh, he's not saying that it's wrong to celebrate one's birth and he's not saying it's wrong to celebrate life. Uh, Solomon is saying that it is important for us to have the right perspective about life is what Solomon is saying. Uh, Solomon isn't being a killjoy here because remember what he said in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse number 4. Remember, uh, to everything there is a season, a time to be born and a time to die. And he says in verse number 4, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. And so Solomon is not against celebrating Proverbs 15 and verse number 13. A merry heart maketh a cheerful countenance. Verse 15, all the days of the afflicted are evil, but he that is of a merry heart will, uh, excuse me, he that is of a merry heart hath a continual feast. And so we understand Solomon is not against celebrating. There's nothing wrong with celebrating. Remember, I preached this a couple of weeks ago, but Solomon is all for, in the right season, he's all for enjoying the life that God has given you. Solomon is all for enjoying uh, the life in a time, in the proper time. But Solomon, listen, Solomon is teaching us this. If we're going to get the wisdom of God, we learn a whole lot more at funerals than we do at feasts. We learn a whole lot more about someone's life when they die, more so than when they're born. I thought to prove my point, I'm not going to do it tonight, but I was going to have Brother Jake display a number of different pictures. The first picture I was going to show you was this strapping little boy. I mean, he's just maybe a, maybe a year, maybe two years old, got a big smile and, and uh, parted his hair down the middle, got a black, uh, black hair, and man, he's just cute, and he looks like he's enjoying life. And I was going to show you that picture and ask you, does this boy look like he's worth celebrating? Does this look, a boy look like he's got a lot of potential? Does this boy look like, uh, I mean, uh, is he attractive? You look at him and you say, man, this kid looks like he's just loving life and he's going to amount to something. And I believe that all of us would agree. But that boy would grow to be a, a Adolf Hitler. He'd grow up to be Adolf Hitler and he'd do some terrible wicked things. And we learn a lot more about Adolf Hitler at the end of his life than we did at the beginning. I was going to show another picture. A similar boy is just a couple years old. Just getting a, uh, lost his front teeth and he had long hair parted down the middle. This was like back in, I don't remember, like the 50s or 60s. And just smiling, swinging, looking like he's having a great time. And I was going to ask the consensus of the auditorium. Does this boy look like he's worth celebrating? And I have no doubt we'd all agree. That boy would grow up to be Charles Manson. Do some terrible, wicked things. Take the life of many people. 
and so on and so on. I could name a number of different people and I could show you a number of different people uh, that when you look at them at the beginning of their life, they look like they're gonna amount to something. They look like they're worth celebrating and there's nothing wrong with doing that, but we learn a lot more about them and their character and who they were at the end than we do the beginning. Now, excluding my son from ages six months to 12 months, I've never met an evil baby. Never. Never met an evil baby. Hey, you don't believe me? Trust me. My son was wicked between those months and then he grew out of it. But other than that, I've never met an evil baby. But I've met a lot of wicked people. I've met a lot of wicked people and I'm going to talk about this here in a moment, but I've not been to a lot of funerals, but I've been to some funerals and I've been to some funerals of some people who did some pretty wicked, heinous things. Look at verse 1 again. It says, a good name is better than precious ointment. A good name is better than precious ointment. Solomon is teaching us that there are two prominent days in every one of our lives. The day that we're born and the day that we die. We all understand that. That's elementary. It's not over anybody's head. There's two days. There's a day that we're born and there's a day that we die. Our name is either good or evil dependent on what takes place between those two appointments. Solomon is saying that what happens in between those two days will determine whether or not your name will be a precious fragrance or a foul stench, is what Solomon is saying. A Christian that is full of the wisdom of God understands how important it is to die with a good name. As a matter of fact, I brought this up a couple of weeks ago, but in Solomon's culture, remember, if someone was to die and not have a burial or a funeral, it would be very dishonorable. And so it was custom uh, for, for everybody to know and understand that it meant everything to die with a good name. It was very important. I mean, if you were to die with any kind of black spot on your name, it was a detriment and a curse to even your family that would precede you. And so it was very important to live a life worthy of being said whenever you pass off into eternity, that was a good person. That person had a good name. Sometimes at funerals, it's the life we're weeping over, not the death at all. Again, I've not been to many funerals, but sometimes in a funeral of somebody, it's, it's not the death that you're weeping over, it's the life. What do you mean by that? When you look at somebody who had a life of wasted potential, you look at somebody who had a, a life of wasted potential where they did their own thing, uh, maybe made some foolish decisions, we could say it this way, they left behind a bad name. Look at verse two, he says this. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by the sadness of the countenance the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Simply put, here's what Solomon is saying. Wisdom is found in giving more attention to living a right life and having a good name than living a full life full of mirth. Full of mirth. He uses that word. What's that word mirth mean? Social merriment, hilarity, high excitement of pleasure, feeling in company, noisy. Mirth differs from joy and cheerfulness as always implying that noise, uh, excuse me, uh, always implying that mirth requires monetary gain and material fulfillment. So it's not that he's saying that it's wrong to be cheerful and it's not wrong to be full of joy, but he uses that word mirth. Mirth. So wait a minute. Are you telling me that Solomon is saying that it's wrong for me to be happy? Are you saying that Solomon is saying that it's wrong for me to enjoy my life? If you're enjoying life and all of those, uh, those things that are mirth, those, uh, those, uh, monetary, uh, those monetary possessions and the noise, if that is your sense of fulfillment, yes, Solomon is saying that it's wrong to be happy. If that is the, your source of fulfillment, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. A good name is better than a full life is what he's saying. Crying is better than celebration. Here's the second one. You're not going to like this one. I'll just tell you right now, you're not going to like this one. Correction is better than compliments. Correction is better than compliments. Look at verse number five, if you would. It says, it is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. Uh, now, I found, uh, found that growing up in a Christian home with a uh, pastor, uh, my pastor was my father, growing up in a preacher's home with good parents, I found that although what I wanted in life was a pat on the back, what I needed was a pat on the bottom most of the time. 
Most of the time, what I needed was reprimanding. Most of the time, what I needed was correction. Matter of fact, uh, I grew up again in a preacher's home, and I'm thankful for a dad who reprimanded me and reprimanded me and reprimanded me. Uh, I mean, if you were to look on the outside looking in, you would say that he didn't miss any, any spankings in my entire life. But as I look back on my own life, I can tell you all, you know what I needed more of? Not encouragement, I needed more correction. And that's me speaking of my own heart, I needed more correction. Uh, now there's nothing wrong with compliments. Let me just say that right now. There's nothing wrong with compliments. Matter of fact, how many of you like to be complimented? Raise your hand. How many of you like to be complimented? Every one of you are carnal, prideful, arrogant. No, we all like to be complimented. We appreciate being complimented, but understand that you gain a whole lot more from correction than you do from compliments. That's what Solomon is saying, that you gain a whole lot more from re rebuke and uh, you gain a whole lot more from reprove than you do from compliments and encouragement. You just do. Compliments, for the most part, reinforce what we already think about ourselves. I'm not saying that compliments are wrong. We'll talk about it here in just a second. But compliments simply reinforce what we already think about ourselves. And we, are, we have a sin nature. We don't need any help puffing ourselves up. And so for the most part, compliments just reinforce what we already think about ourselves. Whereas correction can give us wisdom that we didn't know that we needed and we definitely did not want. We learn more from correction than we do from compliments. And, and look at the cultural example that, that Solomon gives, the cultural analogy that Solomon gives to illustrate his point. He says in verse number six, for as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. The crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. Understand that in the time of Solomon, what they would do is if they needed to boil water or they needed to clean some water, uh, they, would, they wouldn't grab big logs and they wouldn't build a big flame like a bonfire. They would grab kindling. They would grab uh, branches that were still alive. They would grab thorns and they'd put them together. They'd light them on fire and it would catch fire quickly. But as the moisture would leave uh, from those living branches, you'd hear that crackling sound. And it'd get hot really fast, but it would dissipate very quickly. It'll dissipate very quickly, and that is exactly what compliments do, are they not? Compliments encourage us, and, and compliments uh, make us feel warm and good inside, but they don't keep us hot for long. They don't keep us hot for long. In contrast, he says this, it is better, verse number six, it is better to hear the rebuke of the wise. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise. Solomon is saying that if you want to be flattered with compliments, surround yourself with thorny, foolish people who will stir your fire for just a moment. Go ahead and, and, and again, I'm all for encouragement, but if, if, you want, if you want to feel good for just a brief while, surround yourself with people that are constantly telling you things that are good about yourself. Surround yourself with people who are just constantly encouraging you and just that. But if you want a fire that is continual and lasting, if you want wisdom, God's wisdom, surround yourself with the wise who are not afraid to get in your face and rebuke you. That's wisdom. Again, nothing wrong with compliments, but if you want to gain the wisdom of God, surround yourself with people who are not afraid to get in your face, point the finger, and say, thus saith the Lord. They're not afraid to rebuke you. They're not afraid to correct you. We don't like that word rebuke. We don't like that word rebuke. I don't like that word rebuke. And I know that you don't like that word rebuke. And the reason that we do not like the word rebuke is because it is contrary to the, cult, uh, to the, uh, to, contrary to the cultural, cultural moral relativism. Cultural moral relativism. What is moral relativism? It's the idea that, uh, excuse me, it's the idea that truth is relative and up for interpretation and negotiation. That's, that's relativism. Moral relativism, uh, relativism is, is that truth is fluid and it can mean what you want it to mean. Brother Lance's uh, definition of truth might be different than what my definition of truth is and that's moral relativism. Moral relativism says that when you walk outside and it's pouring rain, if you say it's not raining, you won't get wet. That'll land with some of you here in just a second. Moral re relativism says that whatever I say is truth and whatever you say is truth, and we're all right, we're all correct. It's that idea and that mindset that is crippling families and churches all over our country because in order to rebuke someone or correct someone, there has to be absolute truth. And so in order to do that, that's why it's so contrary to our culture is because in order to do that, if you're the one that's doing the correcting, that means that you assume you have truth and that I don't. Uh, parents, don't buy into the lie that it is harmful for your children for you to correct them. 
Don't buy into the lie that it's harmful for your children's development for you to correct them and correct them constantly. Understand that just as Solomon wasn't saying that celebration and laughter isn't wrong, he also isn't saying that compliments and encouragement are wrong. And compliments and encouragement, I, I've, been, I've been kind of making jokes at it all night, but we need to be encouraged. We need encouragement and we need admonishment and we need uh, compliments. It helps us. But don't be fooled because it's way more important, Solomon says, it is better to be rebuked than it is to be revered. It's better to receive correction than it is to receive compliments. Jotted this down last night just as I was getting ready. You'll never be a good football player if you surround yourself with cheerleaders and not coaches. I didn't grow up playing football, but I know enough to know that you're not going to be a good football player, a good football team, if you fire your coach and hire a cheerleader. Why? Is there a place for cheerleaders? Absolutely, on the sidelines. There's a place for cheerleaders to encourage. There's a place for cheerleaders uh, to say, hey, keep going, hoorah, you can do this. But every once in a while, you need a coach that's going to get in your face and rebuke you. You need a coach that's going to tell you exactly what you need to hear, not necessarily what you want to hear. I got a couple verses, all in Proverbs. Proverbs 10 and verse number 17. He is in the way of life that keepeth instruction, but he that refuseth reproof erreth. Chapter 12 and verse 1, it says, Whoso loveth instruction loveth knowledge, but he that hateth reproof is brutish. Chapter 15, verse number 5. A fool despiseth his father's instructions, but he that regardeth reproof is prudent. Chapter 17 and verse 10, it says, A reproof entereth more into a wise man than an hundred stripes into a fool. Chapter 25 and verse 12, it says, As an uh, earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold, so is a wise reprover upon an obedient ear. I'm going to take that verse and I'm going to place it over my son's bedroom. Verse 20, uh, excuse me, chapter 27 and verse number 5, short verse, powerful verse, Open rebuke is better than secret love. Last one, 29, verse number one. He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck shall utterly, or excuse me, suddenly be destroyed in that without remedy. God places a very high premium on receiving correction. He thinks it's very important and he wants you to understand that he inspires Solomon to say, hey, listen, it'd be better to surround yourself with wise people who will correct and reprove you than you are to surround yourself with fools that just constantly tickle your ears. Now, before we can continue, I need you to verbally agree. We don't like to do this in a Baptist church where we actually speak out. But I'm going to ask you to speak out verbally and answer. I'm not going to ask a question, but I'm simply going to make a statement. And you just say if you agree or disagree, okay? To get the wisdom of God, it is important that every single member of Wooden Valley Baptist Church receive correction. Do you agree? In order for us to grow in wisdom, God's wisdom... It's important that every single member of Wooden Valley Baptist Church receive correction from time to time. Follow-up question. Who did God, I'm not setting you up for, for failure here, answer truthfully, who did God instruct and commission in the institution of a church to give correction? A pastor. He's given that instruction in 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy chapter number 4 or verse number uh, 2 I believe it is. Or excuse me, verse number 1. He, he's commissioning through Paul preachers and administering them to give correction. He says this, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Pause. Say it again. Preach the word. Preach the word. I'll say it until I get the response that I want. Preach the word. Not man's opinion. Not what you think. It's not your social hour. Preach the word. And then he says this, be instant in season, out of season. In other words, when it's popular in the culture and it's not popular in the culture. When you feel like it or you don't feel like it. When doing so might cost you a relationship with somebody, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Exhort with all long suffering. Is that what it says next? Exhort with all long suffering. Let's just skip the other two and let's just go straight to exhort. Exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. Is that what it says? No. Two very important words. Reprove and rebuke. Reprove and rebuke. It's part of the commission that God gave through Paul for the preacher and then even the pastor to correct, to reprove, and to rebuke the members through preaching. Man, I wish pastor would stop preaching these reprimanding messages. Every time that he preaches, I just feel so discouraged. 
Two-thirds of the instruction were reprove and rebuke. Two-thirds of the instruction uh, were negative and had negative connotations in that you're going to have to say something and preach something, the Bible, that's going to reprove and rebuke some people. And now again, I understand that we need exhortation and we need encouragement and we need uh, somebody to encourage us and that's something that we, we do need and I don't want to take away from that. I, this is not in my notes, but I was just thinking about this all the time. I get on Facebook and Instagram and I see pictures I see pictures of people posting their devotions. And I'm not trying to dog it. If you do it, don't stop because of me. I think it's great. Post your devotions. It might be an encouragement to somebody else. But what I've noticed a lot of the times is that they'll post and it'll, it'll say something the longs of, uh, along the lines of, man, my devotions really encouraged me today. And I, I, I think that's great. I think that's wonderful. But can I just tell you, when I open up the Word of God and I, I, I read the Word of God every single day, you know what? Most of the time, I lace up my shoes and I brace for impact. Because you know what it does? Whenever I open up the word of God, most of the time it reproves and it rebukes the fire out of me. Sometimes I walk away encouraged and I'm thankful for those times, but most of the time I walk away saying, just reminded me of how sinful I am and how holy he is. And so uh, God says in his word and he's inspired through, uh, through Solomon that we need to understand that we are better to receive correction than we are to receive encouragement. We're better to receive correction and reprove and rebuke than we are to see, uh, see exhortation and receive compliments. It is better uh, to receive correction than it is to receive compliments. Here's the third one. Character is better than comfort. Character is better than comfort. Verse number seven, it says, Surely oppression maketh a wise man mad, and a gift destroyeth the heart. Very interesting verse. Surely oppression maketh a wise man mad, and a gift destroyeth the heart. A couple of years ago, I heard an illustration, and it was about a businessman who was applying for a very high-end job. Sends out his application and uh, sends it to this very, uh, very uh, uh, established organization, and so uh, the CEO reviews his application, gives him a call, and he says, hey, I want you to come, and I want you to, uh, 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 I'm going to give you an interview. I'm going to see if this is going to work out, and he says, man, thank you so much for the opportunity. Tells him to be here on a certain day. And then he says, let me give you directions. I'm going to tell you how to get uh, to our office. And he said, oh, no, I don't need directions. I have a GPS and I can actually get there. And he said, well, you know, you can never trust those things. So why don't I just tell you? And he said, no, don't even worry about it. I just, I know how to get there. I think I know already, but I'm just going to use my GPS. And this was back in the time. How many of you have ever had those Tommy GPSs? You know what I'm talking about? The ones that stick on your windshield. You have to take those and you have to update those constantly. So he typed in the address, gets up the next morning, leaves in enough time to get there with, I mean, way early. Uh, I mean, 30, 45 minutes early, I'm gonna make it on time, I'm gonna sit, relax, ponder on my answers, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna nail this interview. And so he gets in his car and he begins to make his way over. And again, he leaves with plenty of time to be able to make it to his job interview. And as he's traveling there, he runs into a little bit of traffic. And the, uh, and the GPS speaks to him and it says, would you like to take a shortcut? Why, yes, I'd like to take a shortcut. I don't want to sit here in traffic, and so he hits the button, and he looks, and his ETA had gone down three or four minutes, and oh, this is a great decision, and so he's going, and it's taking him through these back roads, and he gets to a roadblock, gets to a roadblock, and the GPS is saying to continue, but he can't continue because the road's blocked off, and, and the road's not accessible anymore, and the GPS comes on, and it says, would you like to take a shortcut? Well, yes, I'd like to take a shortcut. He hits the button again and it again winds him down some different roads and it, it makes its way to a ravine and he goes to cross the ravine and there's no bridge. GPS is saying to continue, but he can't continue because there's no bridge there. GPS comes on and it says, would you like to? He said, no, I don't want to take a shortcut. Turns the GPS off and he goes all the way back to where he had started, sits in traffic and he's over two hours late to his interview. Walks in. Goes up to the CEO of the company, he said, I'm so sorry I'm late, and began to explain about all the different things that happened, and he began to beg the man, hey, can I just please get the interview? And he said, son, I gave you instructions on how to get here, but you decided to take a different way. He said this, sometimes when you take a shortcut, you think it will get you there faster, but it will really just slow you down. Here Solomon gives a picture of someone who accepts a bribe. Verse 7, it says, Surely oppression maketh a wise man mad, and a gift destroyeth his heart. So he receives this bribe, and in doing so, solves one problem, but creates another problem. He solves one issue, but he creates another issue. Uh, in receiving that bribe, uh, in turn, he loses his heart and loses his soul. 
And simply put, in these verses, these next few verses, Solomon is warning us against pragmatism. He's warning us against pragmatism. That's a big college word that I learned in school. There's a lot of different definitions of pragmatism, but how many of you are like me and you're just a meat and potatoes kind of guy? You just want the simple definition. Here's the simple definition of pragmatism. The ends justify the means. The ends justify the means. In other words, it doesn't matter how I get to my destination just as long as I get there and get there quickly. It doesn't matter what road I take. It doesn't matter what avenue I take. As long as I get to where I'm going, it doesn't matter how I get there. Listen very carefully. God is not just concerned with you ending up where he wants you to end up. He's also very concerned with the path that you take to get there. He's very concerned with the path that you take. And he's very concerned with the road that you take to get to the destination that he set before you. Wisdom says that character is better than comfort. And might I also add this, wisdom is also better than convenience. It doesn't just matter where you're going. It matters very much how you get there, according to Solomon and according to God. I mean, could you imagine with me, let's just see, uh, uh, Brother Lance. Brother Lance, you've got your kids in school. Could you imagine with me that James comes home and he hands you an envelope and you open up the envelope and in the envelope are his grades. Oh, James, I'm sorry, did I... A touchy subject here. Uh, in his envelope is his grades, and it's filled with D's, C's, and even a few F's. Everybody, you should just say, oh, D's, C's, and a few F's. Yeah, that's right. Big trouble. Looks at James in disappointment, and probably, if I know you very well, some frustration, and maybe the dad eyes come out. Plays on the ball team, not anymore. No ball team, no TV, no video games, no friends, no nothing. You're, I mean, you're grounded for life, and I would imagine, I don't know, how old are you, James, 15, 16? 16? You're old enough for a spanking. And what if he were to look at James and say, James, this is unacceptable. You're going to go to school, and you're going to do whatever it takes to get your grades. And you know what? I want you to get straight A's for the rest of the school year, straight A's. And if you don't, there's going to be a price to pay. Do whatever it takes to get the grades necessary. I want straight A's for the rest of the semester. I got you, Dad. Don't even worry about it. And he goes to school. Fast forward several months. He comes in, similar day. Comes in and he hands him the envelope and he's just glowing and he's excited. And he opens it up and angels sing, ah, as he opens it up and it's just glistening and shining straight A's across the board. Everybody say, woo. Yeah, that's right. Straight A's. Let's go. Let's go get your sisters. We're going to have ice cream party on me. Family night. I'm so excited. Thank you, James. Thanks for doing what you're supposed to do. Just, I'm curious, how did you turn it around? That's wonderful. Dad, it's great. You said do whatever it takes, and so I cheated on this test, and I cheated on this test. I looked over someone's shoulder on this test. I plagiarized this program, or excuse me, this project and this project, and I did whatever it took to get straight A's. Now, I would imagine, and those of you who are in my Sunday school class this morning in regards to uh, being triggered, I would imagine that his response to James' actions would be different than his first response. I would imagine that he'd be fuming mad. Why? Because it doesn't matter if he got good grades if he cheated to get them, right? Doesn't matter if he got good grades if he cheated to receive them. Who cares if you receive a promotion at work when you manipulated the boss to do so? Who cares if you work at a church on Sunday, but you're visiting websites that you're not supposed to visit on Monday? Who cares if you took your wife out on a date last week, but you're flirting with your coworker this week? Who cares? Character is better than comfort and convenience. Character is who you are in your soul. Character is who you are when no one's watching. It is more important for you to distribute character than convenience and comfort, is what Solomon is saying. God does care about the road you take to get to the destination that he set before you. And the road you take will determine, determine your character. Are you pragmatic? He gives us a few signs of pragmatism. Pragmatism, number one, pride over patience. If you're pragmatic, you will promote pride over patience. Look at verse number eight. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof, and the patience in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Now, I would assume, I'm not a very smart guy, but I would assume that the opposite of patience is impatience. Opposite of patience is impatience. But you know what Solomon says? The opposite of patience is pride. Pride is the opposite of, of, of patience. Why? Because when you're impatient, Pastor mentioned that this morning, when you're impatient... It lends us to forego the path that God has set before us to create our own. What is that? Pride. I heard it said that pride is simply saying, my way is better than God's way. 
You're pragmatic when you promote pride over patience. You're pragmatic when you promote hostility over hospitality. Verse number nine. Hostility over hospitality. Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry, for anger resteth in the bosom of fools. Be not hasty to be angry. We've been talking, I started a series just last Sunday and this Sunday, uh, and we called it emojis. And we've been going over in teen class uh, how to deal with how you feel and the emotions that you experience. And next week, we're gonna start on the emotion of anger, and I'm gonna spend as much time as I need, probably three or four weeks. Why? Because angry is a big deal. Uh, anger, the emotion of anger is a big deal. And, and you know what it does? It, it displays your character like nothing else. How quickly you become angry. This is to my shame, but I grew up playing basketball and I like to think that I was a pretty good ball player, but I was a hothead. You know what that means? I was a hothead. I would get mad over anything and everything we'd be playing. I can remember getting technical fouls and getting kicked out of games and getting kicked out of gyms. I'm, I had a, I'm serious. I had a bad attitude and I was a hothead. You know what I used to say? I'm just passionate about the game. No, I lacked character. Because nothing will display your character. Okay, teens, say it with me. What's down in the well comes up in the bucket. What's down in the well comes up in the bucket. We've been talking about that in teen class. What is inside yourself and your emotions will come out through your reactions. Anger is just a display of your lack of character. The two indicators of a pragmatic fool is a proud heart and an angry spirit. Wisdom says that character is better than comfort and convenience. Here's the last one. It's a very interesting one. The current is better than the completed. You got it? The current is better than the completed. Look at verse number 10. Say not thou, what is the cause, that the former days were better than these? For thou dost not inquire wisely concerning this. Some of you are not going to like this next point. What is the cause that the former days were better than these? For thou dost not inquire wisely concerning this. Solomon is saying that there is a foolish, excuse me, there is a foolishness attached to always longing for the good old days. Is what he's saying. There's a foolishness uh, attached in, into always longing for the good of old days. This, this thought came to me this week, but do you realize that one day today will be the good old days years from now? That's interesting. Today will be the good old days, and I can just see it. We're going to be sitting in a brand new, newly remodeled, 10 years from now, brand new, newly remodeled auditorium. And it's going to be nice. It's going to be great. I can just envision it. I won't tell you what I'm envisioning because you'll disagree. But I mean, it's going to be nice. It's going to be wonderful. And I mean, it's going to be the most beautiful uh, interior that you've ever seen. And mark my words, there's going to be a member that's going to be sitting next to another member saying, man, I miss, miss the good old, you remember the green carpet? The green carpet and the green uh, drapes and the green chairs and the green everything, man, those were the good old days. The reason I know that that's the case is because there's people now who are sitting in this auditorium who talk about the good old days of the Grange Hall. Or the good old days, remember, remember when we were in the Grange Hall and we used to have to tear down and set up? Those were the good old days. Or you remember being in the annex? Those were the good old days. Man, I miss the good old days. Solomon says that there's a foolishness in having this, this, this romanticized attachment to how it used to be. And I thought that the best way to say it would be this. Solomon is saying, be careful living your life looking in the rearview mirror all the while missing the windshield of the goodness of God right in front of you. I found that those who are constantly reminiscing about the good old days were just as miserable in the good old days as they are today. Those who are constantly reminiscing about how good it used to be and how miserable it is now are probably just as miserable back then as they are today. This is not my notes, but this also came to me this week. It was, it was a joy to have uh, uh, Landon and Marissa here, and I appreciate them. They did a great job, and I'm praying that the Lord would bring them to our church, and uh, if it be his will, and we're excited, and maybe even moving the ball down that direction, and so I'm excited to see what God is going to do, but I have this kind of overwhelming fear for Landon and for Marissa when they come here, and simply because there's going to be some maybe parents and probably some teenagers who are going to fold their arms and say, man, you remember the good old days when Brother Day was our youth pastor? Those were the days. 
He ne- I mean, he never corrected us. The games that he did were so much better. They were so much better than Brother Landon and Marissa's, and they'll have a stinking attitude. And you know what's funny is the same people who are probably going to complain were the same ones complaining when you came and said, man, you remember Brother Gascoigne? Brother Gascoigne was the best youth pastor that we've ever had. And what's funny is the same people who are going to complain about that and complain about uh, the current state of, of our youth are going, to, they're the ones who were not receiving the correction. They're the ones who were not involved. They're the ones who were not a part of the program. But they're going to reminisce about the good old days. Also, not in my notes. I talked to Brother Chip just a couple of months ago, and I was talking to him about the transition whenever he left, and I said, man, Brother Chip, we miss you so much and miss your, your influence, and it's been hard on our church, and there's been some people who have had some, some different perspectives, fancy word for attitudes, uh, but there's been some, there's been some interesting uh, 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 um, maybe perspectives on the transition, and he said, who? And I said, well, it doesn't matter, you know, it's just, I was asking him for counsel on how to handle situations. No, who? Who are you talking about? And I started to tell him who said what, and he was shocked, and I kid you not, I'm quoting him. He said, are you kidding me? Those people who are complaining about me being gone, they complained when I came. And when I was here, this is what he said, they listened to zero of my counsel. They listened to nothing that I had to say. All too often, we romanticize the good old days and forget that we are just as dissatisfied then as we are now. Just as dissatisfied with the current condition as we were back in the good old days. Are you saying, Lamar, that it's wrong for me to reminisce about how good it used to be? No, I'm not saying that at all. Matter of fact, I encourage it. Tell stories. Talk about how life was good. Talk about in the life of this church and in this family, in the life of, of your job. Talk about the good old days. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. It's okay to reflect on the goodness of God yesterday, but not at the expense of recognizing his goodness today. In the life of this church, it is okay to talk about how good God has been in its, in, in its history of Wooden Valley Baptist Church, which hasn't he been good? Absolutely. But a lot of the times the reason that we cannot move the ball down the field is because there's people who are refusing to see how good God is right now because they're too busy being distracted with the provisions of yesterday. In the life of this church, in the life of your family, in the life of your job, the reason that you have hit a cap and the reason that you can't advance and the reason that you have to reminisce about the good old days is because you're distracted with the provisions of God yesterday, looking in the rearview mirror, all the while missing the goodness of God in the windshield right in front of you. Solomon says it's okay to remember the good old days, but don't live there. Don't reside there. Don't get stuck there. The current is better than the completed. So let's summarize. <clears throat> summarize in a couple of statements and we'll be done. In summary, we see that God places a higher premium on having wisdom than he does on having knowledge. God desires that we prioritize living right over living full. That we hear the rebuke of the wise, that we uphold our character even when it isn't convenient, and that we live in the present blessings of God, not distracted by the provisions of yesterday. Wisdom is found not just in reaching the destination that God has placed before us, but also in allowing Him to guide us on the path He wants us to take to get there. That's applying wisdom. Wisdom is better than knowledge. Wisdom is better than knowledge. Lord, I pray that you'd be with us tonight. Thank you so much for speaking to me about things that I know that I need to deal with. And if you only spoke to me, I believe that it was worth it, but I believe that you spoke to hearts tonight, maybe in a number of different ways. I'm not exactly sure, but I know that uh, there's things that this church has to work on. There's things that I need to work on. And so I pray that uh, as we go into the invitation, that people would take time to come before you, confess sin when it's needed, and Lord, ask for forgiveness, but then also to ask you, to come in and to direct our path and to guide our path and to show us not just the destination but the direction. I pray that we would have a hunger for wisdom. I pray that we would have a hunger for wisdom and that we would look at the goodness of you today, not being distracted by just the provisions of yesterday. Lord, thank you for speaking to hearts tonight. I pray that you do a work in Jesus' name. Amen. If you